You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 29th of August 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. EU leaders, of course, don't want to throw oil on these flames and don't want to be drawn into Boris Johnson's game of escalation, of provocation, of hit back, of blame game. And of course, that all plays into Putin's narrative of saying, you see how lucky you are, Russian people, that you have someone like me who provides strength and order and courage at the top, although they're beginning to doubt that too. We'll be taking a look at the latest Brexit chaos and global reaction with our news panel, which today consists of Stephen Diehl, the Russia analyst, and Tessa Shishkovitz, UK correspondent for the Austrian Newsweekly Profile. We'll also discuss Russia's plan to get a new civilian aircraft off the ground and what it might mean, if anything, for the aviation industry's duopoly of Boeing and Airbus. And we'll be finding out why Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace has been considered a dangerous text by an Indian judge. Plus... Ministers have drafted a law to prevent and treat mobile phone addiction. The bill lays out plans for education programmes to reduce excessive phone use, particularly by teenagers. The latest view from the editorial floor of Monocle, where we hear why more governments could move to legislate against excessive phone use. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. And we will begin with the political shenanigans here in the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson yesterday announced that Parliament would be prorogued, which is to say suspended, for an unusually long period ahead of a new Queen's speech. That's the ceremony which launches a new Parliament, and this one is scheduled for October 14th. The more important date, of course, is October 31st, when the UK is due to leave the European Union. Well, earlier I spoke to Lord Campbell, former leader of the Liberal Democrats. He argues that this is a way of showing to the European Union that we, the United Kingdom, are really serious about leaving on the 31st of October if you don't give us a better deal and in particular withdraw what's called the backstop, the arrangement which covers the position of Northern Ireland. Uh, Although quite a few of the more rabid Brexiteers, as they are known, have been heard to say in the last 24 hours, even if the European Union were to agree to remove the so-called backstop, there are conditions in the withdrawal agreement which we wouldn't support anyway. I think now the most likely, well, I think the most likely objective, so far as the Prime Minister is concerned, is not to get a deal with Europe, it's to uh, implement the uh, sort of motif of his campaign to be the leader that we would leave on the 31st of October do or die, to use the expression he himself used. That was Lord Campbell, former leader of the Liberal Democrats, speaking to me earlier. I'm joined now in the studio by Stephen Diehl and Tessa Shishkovitz. Uh, And we'll have a look now at how that Brexit chaos might be seen from abroad, because for several centuries up until about three years ago, British politics was both renowned and admired for its stability, reliable and general observance of common sense. Since about three years ago, the world has instead had to consider the spectacle of both of Britain's great political parties, having nervous breakdowns at the same time against a backdrop of Brexit, the most seismic shift in the British political landscape in the last half a century or so. Tessa, how much fun have you been having trying to explain this to readers abroad? Well, I think most uh, 
people on the continent in the different European countries are speechless what is happening here and the road uh, that Britain is taking now under this new leadership in general. But especially yesterday, there was a big gasp of disbelief in in Europe. Um, you didn't get so many direct uh, comments of the political Uh, leaderships of the governments and the capitals because EU leaders of course don't want to throw oil on these flames and don't want to be drawn into Boris Johnson's uh, game of escalation of provocation of uh, hit back of blame game of in the end then triumph or failure <laughs> so they stay relatively uh, silent there were some reactions in Brussels from the EU parliament which were not very positive. You can imagine that Guy Verhofstadt, who is known as a you know a very outspoken person, politician, that he was uh, not very positive about the, the idea to shut down your own parliament. But uh, in general, it was more interesting to see how the um, newspapers reacted. You had um, the left-wing press was harsher than the right-wing press, I would say. But there were the uh, Taz, the uh, Tageszeitung in Berlin, for example, had a nice cover image of uh, Boris Johnson's front bench with the MPs and ministers having red crosses over their mouths, so they're being shut up uh, actively. Um, but in general, I think there's a very strong disbelief and also uncomfortable feeling because of course for the EU it's very bad if Britain leaves in the first place but then also on this disruptive uh, uh, w way this is something that will not be good for anyone and everyone is really really sorry about that I think. Uh, Stephen is it your sense that the sh you know shenanigans is a word I think I've already used three times this morning and we've only been going 15 minutes but is it your sense uh, that these events let's go with events have radically altered the reputation of Britain in the eyes of the world because rightly or wrongly and, and British democracy has of course always been far from perfect as all democracies are but it was generally regarded as a thing to be admired even emulated. Indeed, yes, the father of parliaments or the mother of parliaments, depending on which way you're looking at it. But uh, that that's often been said. Now, I've uh, I, mean, I have friends in from many different countries, and in conversations with them, they've kind of sh shaken their heads and said, "You know, what is going on in your country? You know, what are you doing to yourselves?" Um, of course, a lot of my connections are also with Russia. And just to follow on from what Tessa was saying, to give a reaction from over there, um, the uh, the word that sprang to mind curiously, a German word, was Schadenfreude. Um, <laughs> that uh, they, um, the Russian reports I saw were were playing up the fact that you would think that half the population was out on the streets protesting yesterday. That was really what they put into their, their news stories. And of course, all news, uh, main news, story, main news uh, stations in Russia are controlled from the Kremlin. So they, they were playing it up. And, and, and yes, they have, they have enjoyed, they have you know, this, this joy of uh, someone else's demise and someone else's misfortune it has been very strong in, in the Russian media and the Russian political uh, groupings. Uh, over the last three years, and this really was felt yesterday that yeah, you know, this is ha, you know, serves them right. Look, you know, and of course that all plays into Putin's narrative of saying, you see how lucky you are, Russian people, that you have someone like me who provides um, strength and order and, and courage at the top. Although they're beginning to doubt that too. Um, so, 
Yeah, I, I think this, you know, you know, people are just looking at us and saying, you know, what are we doing to ourselves? As indeed am I. I'd like to say when, <laughs> when Tess about this, you know, gasp, of what, I, I would like to say that would have been me. But um, I think, you know, with this present government and with this present prime minister, you know, it, it's we're beyond gasping. We just think, you know, what next? Uh, I mean, I have had that experience, as I suspect most people who live in Britain, who've travelled in Europe in the last few years of you know, had of having to explain to incredulous people we've met uh, what on earth is going on. I had it most notably myself in Albania a couple of years ago where I had the same conversation in the space of about 24 hours with about a dozen people ranging from the taxi driver who picked me up at the airport to the Prime Minister of the country. Uh, none of whom, I have to say, seemed any less baffled than any of the others, uh, which is weirdly reassuring. Um, but Tessa, going back to the politics of this, this, this idea, and Ming Campbell, our earlier guest, uh, suggested this might be the that the Boris Johnson's thinking as well that he's it's all part of his grand bluff to the EU that you know I'm serious I will do this and not for the first time you're rather reminded of the sheriff in blazing saddles pointing the gun at his own head and threatening to pull the trigger if, if people don't uh, do as he asks uh, but is that going to work is have we passed the point basically at which the rest of the EU leaders have just stopped caring well, I think one should never exclude uh, that uh, there could still be some movement and that this uh, game of uh, galloping towards each other with full speed might in the end produce some surprising crash results. Uh, it usually is not positive. And I think what Boris Johnson is miscalculating is that the European Union is a rules-based um, organization that the European Commission cannot not cannot negotiate stop negotiating and just throwing in something just for fun or because Boris Johnson wants it. I mean, there is a withdrawal agreement on the table. It has been negotiated. This is not a joke when when uh, Michel Barnier or everyone else is repeating this over and over again. What is the calculation that the European Union would now scrap the backstop for Northern Ireland, um, although it is severely committed to the um, to the Belfast Peace Agreement and sees itself as, as a, a power to guarantee that it is being upheld also, is really uh, a, a misunderstanding of the situation, I think. So the European Union um, has also in last week when Boris went on his charm tour to Berlin and Paris and on to Biarritz, Mm, they have all reacted quite politely. Nobody wants to interfere gravely into British politics, obviously. They, Angela Merkel even seemed to be slightly charmed by Boris Johnson, which is also nothing new. I mean, <laughs> a lot of people are charmed by him. But she, in no way did she uh, open a new track of negotiations by saying we have still 30 days left. I mean, this was a complete parallel world in the British media to it was, suddenly it was, yeah, start it was talking the, about The, the interpretation of it by some British newspapers was absolutely extraordinary. But it was not only in the in the newspapers that you would expect that, in the Telegraph or something, but it was also the Guardian said, like, we have like 30 days left. And, uh, and I think this is also, I can understand that people here feel maybe there is some hope in this whole crazy development. And the same thing on the continent, people would still hope that there can be something done. It's just the problem is that the more he escalates, the more the European Union can not react positively because, you know, they also cannot be seen into giving to a crazy uh, 
explosive, disruptive politician who sort of tries to hijack the entire European Union for his domestic political agenda. Stephen Diel and Tessa Shishkovitz will be back with both of you in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Daniel Bates with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. Italy's center-left Democratic Party and the populist Five Star Movement have agreed to form a new coalition government. The leaders of the two parties say they intend to set aside their ideological differences to govern for the common good. The new government will once again be led by Giuseppe Conte. Last week, he skewered Lega leader Matteo Salvini, who had triggered the downfall of the previous coalition. Today, Conte said Italy should play a leading role in Europe, a huge shift from the policies of the right-wing Liga. China says its troops will defend Hong Kong's prosperity. This after Beijing rotated troops in its People's Liberation Army garrison in the Chinese-ruled city. This just days before planned demonstrations calling for full democracy for Hong Kong after three months of sometimes violent demonstrations. Chinese state media described the troop movement as routine. The U.S. Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has announced that she is ending her candidacy for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. Gillibrand said she was withdrawing from the contest in an online video after failing to qualify for a third Democratic debate next month. And a volcano on the Italian island of Stromboli has erupted for the second time in recent months. No injuries or damage has been reported so far, but streams of ash and lava have forced tourists to flee the hugely popular spot, which lies on the north coast of Sicily. Now, back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House for you. I'm Andrew Muller here with Tessa Shishkovitz and Stephen Diel. And let's look now at Russia and its ongoing attempts to resurrect itself as a manufacturer of commercial aircraft. The Soviet Union was actually pretty good at this, and indeed it is still possible to fly in Antonov's, Ilyushin's and Tupolev's, though mostly in Russia itself or in countries which have or had a relationship with Moscow. At the MAX Air Show this week, Russia has now unveiled what it hopes will be a plausible rival to Airbus and Boeing, the MC-21, a jet built by Irkut, also the manufacturers of Sukhoi combat aircraft. The first MC-21s will be flown by Aeroflot in 2021. Um, Stephen, does it strike you that, that Russia has not been making all it could have been making of its its commercial, avi- a- a- yeah. commercial aviation sector? Easy for me to say. I would go further and say Russia has not been making all it could make of of its economy, um, <laughs> not just aviation. Um, this was um, some years ago. I ran the Russo-British Chamber of Commerce, and I was always banging this drum in Moscow itself, saying, "Look, you know, you need to do more for your small and medium businesses as well as you know, you just re- re- are relying on uh, natural resources, particularly oil and gas. Um, you know, you need to be." energizing the whole economy and and i mean aviation is one this now this, actually there's a, there's, a, there's a little twist to this story about the plane i think because um the letters that it has on the side are actually cyrillic letters so it's not the mc21 it's the ms21 because what looks like a c in uh, in in, in uh, Latin script is actually an S in that Russian. is outstanding pedantry, Stephen. So it's Thank not you for that. R, but you see the point about the pedantry is: had they been aiming at the Western market, would they have put uh, a, a Latin S on the side? So in fact, who are they aiming at? They know that they're not going to sell many to the West, if any at all, because for one thing, there are sanctions and sanctions are not going to be lifted in the near future. So if they're hoping to get this plane up in the air, I mean, there was one, they flew one actually at Max. There was a, again, I could see it on. Uh, 
in a Russian TV report. Um, you know, so they've, it's not just a model standing on the ground, which they've shown before. They've, they've actually brought out and flown it. Um, but if they were looking to sell it to the West, then, then you know, call it something that the West is going to latch on to. Um, they they realise that the West are not going to drop sanctions by 2021 uh, in a significant way so that they can actually, you know, the, 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 the wings aren't, uh, the, the carbon fibre they wanted from the Americans, they're not getting. So they've had to rethink that one. Um, it's it really, to my mind, it's just another uh, Putin PR uh, plug forgive the onomatopoeia which doesn't the microphones don't like I know but um, (laughs) that for his own people saying look you see we are advancing look you know we're producing a new plane but who's going to buy it well the only I think the only um, world leader who has gone to Max which is the um, the the air show um, that takes place every couple of years outside Moscow uh, is Erdogan from Turkey. Yes, is, you know, Signi- significantly, I think it's it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, Tessa, is this going to be yet another realm, as Stephen suggests, in which Russia is going to run up against its own, if you will, Russian-ness? Because it, there were problems with airlines or four airlines who bought the, the Sukhoi Superjet 100. They couldn't get it serviced. They couldn't get parts for it. And even if it is cheaper than its rivals, the Airbus 320 and the Boeing 737, people are just going to think it's... It's, it's just going to be too much trouble. Well, I totally agree with your um, analysis that uh, this will is more a PR project than anything else and an anti-Western competitive pet project. But having said that, if, you know, I've lived in Russia from 2002 to 2010 and I've seen how there was no proper investment in the infrastructure for the population. There was no development of, for modern trains and streets and Whatever. But if Putin puts his mind to something and he wants to show that Russia is a great nation, then, of course, he can also put a lot of money into a project like this. If he's serious about developing new um, planes, at least for the domestic market, he might create some movement and some achievement. Also, I doubt very much that there's a real competition between for Airbus or Boeing coming out of this because, as you say, the reluctancy of Western countries to buy these planes will be very high given the fact that they have not the best reputation. Also, it just struck me there was a, a joke that the Russians themselves used to say in Soviet times, which was uh, you know, the sign in the travel agents would say, fly with the planes of Aeroflot, the airline that never forgets, you have no choice. <laughs> well, fi- finally on the news wrap, uh, we will move along to India and the rarely edifying spectacle of either the state or the judiciary, or indeed anybody at all taking an interest in what a citizen chooses to read. A Mumbai judge trying charges against an activist who agitates on behalf of the Dalit caste asked the defendant, Vernon Godsalves, why he owned a copy of Leo Tolstoy's doorstopper, War and Peace. The prosecutor had submitted Gonsalves' ownership of this and other literature as evidence of him possessing, quote, books and CDs with objectionable titles, unquote. Um, Tessa, is this just your proverbial clueless judge, the Indian equivalent of somebody needing it explained to him who the Beatles are, uh, or, or is something more sinister going on here? Because this is weird. Well, I think this is not a new uh, thing that um, governments and their judges, if they are controlled by them, are often wary of even literature being a means to bring down um, unwanted regimes, governments. 
in this case, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert on, on this particular case. It seems to me that this is something that will not go very far. But we have so many, over the history, we had so many uh, cases where uh, war and peace is maybe also a little bit, you would say, also outdated as uh, propaganda uh, prop material for the next political uprising. But you had this, of course, especially in Russia, is a long, long history that people had to smuggle out their manuscripts and their novels and because they were judged to be so politically explosive that they could not be tolerated in as part of your library at home. So uh, I'm not surprised that some judge comes to the idea that there's uh, there's a very dynamic um, element of literature anywhere on this planet. Uh, Stephen, this is one of those occasions, and I, I do not say this lightly, on which we, we should be grateful for the existence of social media, because uh, Indian social media users have taken to this one with a will. Uh, we've seen a lot of people uh, posting photographs of their own bookshelves with invitations to the police to come and have a go if they think they're hard enough. Uh, and I particularly like the contribution by one Advaita Kala who said most people have war and peace in their homes because they've been trying to finish it for 10 years. Um, there's, there's a certain sort of, I guess, uh, self-creating justice to this. The, the judge has said something ridiculous and is therefore being ridiculed and that wouldn't have been possible in this fashion 20 years ago. There's, there's something quite sweet about it. Oh, there is. No, I, th- I, th- I think it's, it's just so absurd. Um, you, you mentioned um, a film earlier with Blazing Saddles. I, it struck me like there's a scene out of Life of Brian because it's for the police who went and got this book off the shelf. It's rather like where the, um, the, uh, the Roman guards go into the, the home and come out and go, I found this spoon, sir. Um, <laughs> well, I found this book, sir. It's called War and Peace. It's got war in the title, sir. Oh, it must be, uh, must be very subversive. Um, I mean, the ironic irony is that, um, you know, Tessa was saying, of course, you can look through Russian and indeed Soviet and, and now post Soviet history of, of Russia and find lots of examples of books which have been banned. One that, as far as I'm aware, never has been is War and Peace. Uh, that's, that is, you know, that's seen as a classic, obviously. What well, is a classic of, of Russian literature? Um, uh, you know, what, what would he say had it been Anna Karenina? Um, you know, would this been, I'm sure that, you know, the judge would have found something wrong with that. I mean, it's just the most absurd case. Stephen Diel and Tessa Shishkovitz, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, the latest opinion from Midori House. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. For a celebration of all things print, tune in to The Stack. Every week on Monocle 24. Featuring expert analysis, the view of magazine veterans, and a look at what's flying off newsstands around the world. The stack goes beyond the headlines to reveal the inner workings of the print industry. Our paper is incredibly expensive and it's imported from Italy. We decided the paper is too important. It's just too important that it looks good, that it's consistent. It creates the impression that we've been around for a very, very, very long time. Listen to The Stack and hear Fernando Augusto Pacheco in conversation with our favorite editors. And get the latest industry insights from our own editor-in-chief, Tyler Brulé. The Stack, Monocle 24's weekly print industry review and analysis show, airs every Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Make it part of your must-listen lineup, live or on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. It's time now to hear the latest views from Monocle's editorial floor. Here's Bill Lutie. The risks 
associated with excessive mobile phone use are well documented. Aside from the perils of not paying attention to one's surroundings, tech neck, text thumb and selfie elbow are just some of the ailments that sound made up but sadly aren't. In Italy, politicians want to get a head start on such issues. Ministers have drafted a law to prevent and treat mobile phone addiction. The bill lays out plans for education programmes to reduce excessive phone use, particularly by teenagers. Studies show that half of Italians aged 15 to 20 consult their devices at least 75 times a day. Austrian authorities might be tempted to follow suit. A recent trial of driverless minibuses in Vienna was ditched after a woman lost in the glow of her smartphone bumped into one of the vehicles while it was moving, mercifully at only 12 kilometres an hour. Those Italian lawmakers might be right. A future where cars and humans fail to notice each other is a cause for concern. Thank you, Bill. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache and researched by Yolin Goffan and Naomi Potter. Our studio managers were Steph Chongu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of our magazine show on cities, The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London, which is, of course, 1300 in New York. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 